0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, Building a Household of Faith on a Foundation of Grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. appreciate you being in place. Heath, can you give me some mic? Alright, we're really about to get started now. I'm talking to you. (laughs) Okay, we are about to review Baptist Covenant Theology, and um, you can stand there, and, or you can find the seat, but well, I'm going to talk about it anyway, all right? Um, so we've been, we are in week eight of an eight-week series, so some of you can breathe a sigh of relief that this is almost over, and me and my obnoxious insistence on starting on time will be... Uh, over with soon, then you'll have to deal with someone else doing the same thing. Um, but uh, anyway, we're, we're uh, near the end of this, very last class, and um, I'm hoping that we can tie this up a little bit. We're looking at a specific uh, uh, alternative to, to uh, Baptist covenant theology today, and we're going to um, just do a little compare and critique of that. Let me just remind you, for those of you who may not have been here for the past seven weeks, what this is about. Um, the, the diagram that we all know and love now, I'll show it to you again. But in essence, what we're, t- what we're looking at is a, uh, a way of thinking about the structure of the way God has revealed and put into, p- into action His plan of redemption. And we can see that, that the Bible itself teaches us to think in a framework like this that in, a, in essence that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament and the New Testament is a is an unfolding or an exposition of the New Covenant and the Old Testament is an unfolding or exposition of the Old Covenant which is really a series of covenants that build up to the Mosaic Covenant. The, the, the New Covenant which, which uh, we'll say is, is uh, sometimes theologically referred to as the covenant of grace is, is implemented in the new covenant and yet it is, um, it is progressively revealed even in the old covenant. So we have the, the structure here is of two covenants, two major covenants you might say, or two major divisions, one being the old covenant, one being the new. The, they are separate covenants and yet in the old covenant, the, the, the New Covenant is being progressively revealed and pointed to. No one was ever saved by virtue of the Old Covenant, but the Old Covenant in itself pointed to salvation in Christ in the New Covenant, pointed forward. And now that we are in the New Covenant, we look back to what Christ has done to establish the New Covenant. So that's kind of a, the gist of, of the overall framework that we're looking at. Lots of details there, which we have been unpacking. All right, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for your goodness and mercy as it's reflected to us in these covenant promises. Thank you that you have given us a, a, a framework, a way of thinking about uh, the, the complexities of your uh, redemptive work in in some relatively simple terms. And I ask, Father, that you'd help us to grasp those things and remember that basic framework so that it would help us as we read the Scriptures and as we interpret uh, what you're saying to us in the Old and New Testaments. Help us, Father, to, to be strengthened in our faith and in our uh, confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has fulfilled all of the promises, the one in, in whom uh, all of the... The the law has been answered in in terms of a perfect life of obedience and has taken on our, our sin and substituted for us uh, as a sacrifice on our behalf. And uh, Father, may we uh, come to cherish and relish these things more and more as we look into them and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I hated to break up all that wonderful fellowship that I was seeing around because that was... Uh, that's precious. But now it's time to look into God's Word. So today we're going to look at, at an alternative system for understanding the unfolding plan of God in history. One We looked at another one last week, which was dispensationalism. This week we're looking at, at um, something called New Covenant Theology. New Covenant Theology is very unlike dispensationalism in the sense that Whereas dispensationalism is probably the majority report in evangelicalism. Um, lots of people have heard of it. Lots of people are influenced by it that haven't, have never even heard of it. And it just is sort of part of the warp and woof of evangelicalism. Um, I mentioned last time that, that uh, you know, there was a movie that just came out last weekend that's based on the dispensational framework. Um, I, I can't think of any movies, and you will not find movies made from a New Covenant theology framework. Um, Whereas there are many, many books written pro and con about dispensationalism, you'll probably find only a handful of books that are written on either side related to New Covenant theology. So out there in the larger evangelical world, it's a very small voice. Okay, But in the world where we are, that is Baptists in the Reformed tradition, it has made a, a big impact. And so I think it's worth talking about. It's something that those of you, especially I'm concerned about, I think, those of you who are students um, or won't be here very long for one reason or another will be looking, uh, as you leave here, you'll be looking for another church. You may look for another church that's similar to ours. And you'll find lots of similarities in churches that hold to New Covenant theology and yet some pretty significant differences as well. So I want you to understand those similarities and differences so that you're able to make good judgments about finding a church at some point in the future. Um, also, just things you read on the internet, being able to kind of see uh, what's behind it is helpful. Um, just to give you a list of names, again, if you've never heard of New Covenant theology, you probably will not have heard of any of these names, but maybe um, you've come across some of them, some books and so forth. Uh, here are some p- names of people that, ha- that are advocates of New Covenant theology, Uh, One of them is John Reisinger, um, who I'll, let me just say, he's the brother of Ernest Reisinger, who you may have heard of. Um, Ernest Reisinger has passed away. John is still alive. Uh, They pronounce their names differently. It's a long story about that. Um, And they fall on opposite sides of this issue. One of them would hold to what Ernie Reisinger would have held to what we have been teaching here. John would hold to New Covenant Theology. John Zins, Fred Zaspel, Tom Wells. Most of these guys are pastors. All of them are pastors. It's been mostly driven by by pastors rather than academics. Um, Douglas Moo, however, I believe is a professor, a a New Testament professor somewhere, who has taken that same perspective. Uh, Jeff Volker, Steve Lehrer. Um, Recently, a book was published by two Southern Seminary professors, Peter Gentry and Stephen... Wellam, who would not call themselves exactly New Covenant theology, that everybody's coming up with their own terms these days. They would call themselves progressive covenantalists, okay? But it's, there's a lot of similarities between the two. They've written a book called Kingdom Through Covenant, which you may have heard of as some, apparently some massive tome that uh, lays out their perspective. Um, I've just noticed that, that typically, I guess, sociologically, this, this perspective appeals to younger people who write and read blogs, um, people who assume that they can do theology well, apart from the discipline and testimony of the church throughout the ages it tends to be more sort of independent people that, that are trying to carve out their own theology is what I've seen. So in terms of what, uh, a little bit more to the point, um, Co- New Covenant theology sees itself as kind of a middle ground between covenant theology and dispensationalism. And that's for uh, some theological as well as historical reasons. It appeals to Baptists in the Reformed tradition who have traditionally called themselves Sovereign Grace Baptists. So this is pretty much a Baptist phenomenon. Okay, You'll only see Baptists who... You, have, you, have, you kind of have to start as a Baptist to appreciate this. Um, And part of that was this theology is a reaction to the perception that covenant theology is um, leads to infant baptism. And so they've kind of moved away from from traditional covenant theology into this other thing called new covenant theology um, as kind of a putting up an extra wall toward, uh, you know, between them and infant baptism. Okay, so that's kind of. Uh, I guess more socially what's going on there. Um, so what, do they actually, what does New Covenant theology teach? Um, New Covenant theology agrees with covenant theology that the church is the fulfillment and continuation of Israel. So that's something that's different from dispensationalism. That's one of the key things that distinguishes New Covenant theology from dispensationalism. That is, that they see that there's a there's fulfillment and continuity between Israel and the church. They might not say it exactly the way we would say it, but but more closer than dispensationalism. Um, New Covenant Theology agrees with Covenant Theology that there's one way of salvation, both in the Old and New Testaments, flowing from the New Covenant. So in that way, they would agree with us in that respect. Um, this third one, I realized on my way here that I had this not stated very clearly so let me restate this last one um, it agrees with baptist covenant theology not in rejecting one covenant of grace because baptist covenant theology would not agree with that okay what it agrees with is that there that the one covenant of grace is not to two or more administrations okay baptist covenant theology would say that the different covenants are different covenants, not just different administrations of the covenant of grace, and would identify the covenant of grace with the new covenant. Okay, so we would agree, agree on that point, that, that the covenant of grace is not, not divided into administrations, old covenant administration and new covenant administration. We see the, the new covenant as the covenant of grace. The old covenant is a separate covenant that points to and reveals the new covenant coming. All right. Um, I think that New Covenant Theology would pretty much agree with that perspective, except that they don't usually like the language of theological covenants like Covenant of Grace. They wouldn't want to use that term because you can't find that term in the Bible. Okay, so that's kind of the common ground. Where do they differ with Confessional Baptist Covenant Theology? Here's probably the key difference. Um, According to New Covenant theology, all of the Old Testament law is abolished unless it's reestablished by Christ in the New Testament. So they, have a, they talk about the law, the Old Testament law, and then the law of Christ as, those, as though those are two different things and, and cover different things. Um, so they see a very sharp distinction there between those two. All right. Um, and they would base that on passages like Matthew five seventeen. Unfortunately, I would love to do an entire exposition of this that whole passage, but um, I, we don't have time for that. So let me just kind of briefly talk about it. This passage says is where Jesus says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Okay. So what they would see when they would see that as communicating that Jesus is not simply throwing out the old commandments, but that he is actually uh, fulfilling those commandments, and therefore they no longer are uh, applicable to new covenant believers. So he's obeyed them all, he's fulfilled them all, they've run their course in what Christ has done, and therefore they are done and over with. Okay, That's the way they would see it. Uh, Whereas my understanding is that Jesus is, is fulfilling the law in the sense that he is, the, he is the obedience. He is our obedience for the law, okay? But not only that, in the context, he is, he is working in the hearts and lives of his people so that they will obey and uh, honor the Lord through in his law. And I think the, the emphasis of the rest of the passage seems to, to indicate that. So again, we don't have time to really hash that through, but it would just be a very different view of that passage and its implications. Okay, so in practice, what happens is that the the other most of the other commandments are pretty clearly repeated in the New Testament. And so they would agree that most I mean, like, for example, they would agree with us that you should not commit adultery. Okay, because that's clearly repeated in the New Testament. But if it's not repeated, they would say, therefore, it's not doesn't apply to New Testament believers. So in practice, this comes down to a denial of the Christian Sabbath perspective. That the, the Sabbath principle in the Old Testament and in the Ten Commandments is completely done away with, and that there's no obligation anymore to uh, observe a day, a special day uh, of rest and worship before the Lord. Um, some people build a, a Lord's Day perspective without referring it back to the Sabbath. Okay, that just based on New Testament example, there's plenty of New Testament example of Peter, people meeting on the first day of the week and so forth. And so they would build that based on New Testament principle but without looking at that in the Old Testament. And many of them would deny even that. So that there is really no day in particular where we should gather and meet um, for worship. Now, not all of them would say that, but I'm saying this is a, often an, uh, it leads to that implication. Many of them do say that. Um, but also on top of that one particular thing, by the way, let me just say a couple more things about that before I leave it. I think this is very serious and we're going to not talk about this particular point so much. We're going to talk about the overall view of the law, but I think this is very serious in a day when, uh, there, there was a time when Protestant Christianity, uh, had a very wide and deep consensus that, there, was a, there is a special day that Christians are called to observe, and it's the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day is fundamentally a Christian Sabbath. That is, it, it has many of the same uh, uh, ideas of rest and being set apart as holy uh, like the Old Testament Sabbath did. And, um, and in our day, we are seeing that being drained completely in the culture as well as in the church. And and you see more and more things being scheduled on Sundays, um, and it's it's a uh, and we're sitting back just letting it happen without any much of a whimper, and um, and I think this is a pretty serious issue. Um, I I think if um, a particular group of people came up and started saying, well, you know, we have we also are dealing with the the issue of of what is marriage and who should marriage be to. Um, And if a group of people were saying, well, the important thing about marriage is faithfulness to one's partner. It doesn't really matter who you marry or what their gender is. The importance is just being faithful. And we would we would rise up and object to that. We would try to to show the scriptural basis for uh, marriage between a man and a woman and so forth. But what's happening is groups like New Covenant Theology are undermining the, the theological backbone to stand up to the culture when everybody is scheduling things on Sunday and trying to, to push us into their mold, we need the theological backbone to say no, that God has called us to a special observance. He, is get, he has held out a blessing in this day. And we need the backbone theologically and in our convictions to, to hold out against what the culture is doing and even in many cases the church. So so I do see this as a serious issue. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to get into that at all, which is why I have this uh, uh, incredibly dense uh, two-page outline for you. If you've never heard of this or thought about this, I've handed out this outline so that you can read through that and kind of get an idea of what what we're talking about in terms of the the Christian Sabbath perspective. And I'd be glad to talk about that, and we probably need to be... um, teaching on that sometime and unpacking that some and dealing with questions and all. So, but it can't be done today, all right? So, let's go on and let me just say one other thing. It's not simply the Lord's Day that is impacted. It's lots of other helpful instruction in the Old Testament that comes into question. Because if it's not repeated in the New, then according to New Covenant theology, it doesn't apply. Therefore, uh, things like if we ask ourselves... Okay, should, is it okay to spank our children? That's another thing that the culture is telling us uh, loud and clear, that it's not okay. New Testament doesn't say anything about that. So what do we do? If, can we use the Old Testament to teach us what we should do or not? It's not repeated. Okay, so if that's the, if that's the correct way of thinking about God's law, then we're left without guidance in that. Um, is it morally acceptable to marry your first cousin? Or maybe your aunt or your uncle. Or maybe your sister or your brother. Those things aren't mentioned in the New Testament either. So where are we going to get our guidance if the Old Testament doesn't apply? If it has to be repeated in the New Testament. So serious problems and implications of this perspective. Um, Oftentimes you'll find that those who... Is there a question? Well, just basically, I mean, not just that one passage, but Matthew five seventeen, 17. It sort of reflects the thinking that Christ fulfilled it all, that it all had a temporary purpose. And therefore, once, once that purpose came to a close, then it not, uh, not, con- doesn't continue to apply. Unless Jesus in his lordship repeats it or his apostles. So most of it is repeated. So we're not left without any instruction at all, according to their view, just some things. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, like it is. It is an odd approach. Um, and we probably need a whole other class on this because there's so many things that, to say about that, that I've, I've been frustrated as I've prepared saying, I got to talk about this, but no, there's no time. Anyway, so I better move on. Um, sometimes we also see those who, who take this perspective, denying the covenant of works, which we talked about early on here, and I hopefully made a good biblical case for that and And also den- sometimes deny that Christ's life of obedience is imputed to us as obedience, as righteousness. Um, and there are some logical tie-ins for why that comes about from New Covenant theology perspective, okay um, so i I did think though, of uh, one movie that you that maybe could be made related to New Covenant theology. I'm not sure if you could see that, but uh, Anyway, that's the old uh, Ten Commandments. I struck it out and put a nine. You might not be able to see it very well. But anyway, Um, so the Nine Commandments would be the movie that New Covenant Theology would make. Um, All right. So um, let me see now. Uh, Yeah, so I'm going to get off of that one because that was just silly. But um, so... So the next thing I want to talk about is how Baptist covenant theology sheds light on some of these issues, and particularly the issue of the law. So we're just going to look at that one issue. There are lots of smaller things, I think, that, that are different about new covenant theology, but this is the big one. So uh, there is a certain logic to, to new covenant theology. After all, the old covenant did put in place some special laws for special purposes, temporary purposes. There were laws put into place, as we saw, to preserve the line of Abraham. Isn't that right? Because God made a covenant with Abraham that his offspring would uh, serve as a blessing to the nations. And we know that that offspring is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we don't want to... um, We don't want to to continue to observe those things that God intended to be temporary. Scripture calls those things slavery. And, uh, and you know, if, if you ever... I, I was talking about reading in Numbers in my devotions the other day. You, when you get to... As you're reading through the Bible and you get into, like, Leviticus and Numbers and you're kind of bogging down into all this stuff about the sacrificial system and if you've got a spot in your fabric that you have to tear it out and if there's a spot on your wall. Anyways, all this stuff. And... And, um, and it's just really hard to read through, isn't it? I mean, to be honest, it is, okay? Well, it's not, think, if it's hard to read through, can you imagine living under it? They didn't just have to read it and go, hmm, boy, it was tough living back then. Um, you know? <laughs> they had to live through that. They had to live with all those rules and regulations. And so, and, and the New Testament, frankly, says they couldn't live with it, and neither can we, and it's slavery, Okay, now God had a purpose for it because think about how much that set them apart from the other nations, right? I mean, the other nations would have to really want to be among God's people in order to uh, adopt all of that as part of their uh, lifestyle. So it really put a wall of separation between them and the nations around them. And that was part of God's intention. He He set them apart from the other nations through that. And because of that, we have a savior. So God knew what he was doing. So the old covenant also demonstrated that the people of God could not obey the law in themselves. They couldn't obey the extra special laws, but they couldn't even obey the more basic laws that were already in place. Uh, the moral laws that that all Jews and all Gentiles are um, accountable to obey, they couldn't obey those things either. Okay, now what those things were, we have to figure out. Okay, well, also the the old covenant made a a sharp distinction between the foundational law of the covenant, which is I'm going to argue is the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to try to prove that, and the temporary additional law. There were both kinds of laws in. The Mosaic Law, both the the foundational law, which is the Ten Commandments, and the additional law. They made a a very sharp distinction between those two. And it's amazing to me that people don't see that in, in developing their theology of the law. Because think about this. Think about the way the Ten Commandments were presented. And Paul, he he just John and Paul, I'm gonna have to pay you big, big money for the way you've set up my class the last two weeks. But um So, so the 10 commandments, think what's that? Okay, good, good. All right. So think about the way the 10 commandments were, were or was, think of it as a unit was presented to the people. God spoke the 10 commandments audibly made the people fear. They didn't want to hear it. It scared them. Um, so the Ten Commandments were spoken audibly by God. The other commandments were not spoken audibly by God. But second of all, the Ten Commandments were written directly by the finger of God. The others were not written that way. Okay? And also, what was it written on? Tablets of stone. The other law was not written on stone. Now think about that for a second. You know, we say... Um, You know, I was planning to do such and such this weekend, but it's not set in stone. If it is set in stone, that means what? It can't be changed, right? It means it's permanent. And if you were presented with a a body of law and you say, well, here's part A on, on stone. And here's the rest of it. Here's some parchments for you. Wouldn't you kind of get the idea that there's something different? About those ten laws that were chiseled out on stone and the rest of it? I mean, you know, we've looked at lots of ways that God communicated. Like Paul, Paul was talking about through the, God's, uh, the veil that Moses wore and how God communicated something through those circumstances. We also saw, if looked at multiple times, how God communicated something very, very crucial to our, our understanding of the covenants through Ishmael and Isaac the circumstances of Abraham's life. If we can't see that God is communicating something here, wow, boy, this is so clear. This is something permanent. The Ten Commandments is something never to be changed. It's unalterable. And and the other stuff is important, but it's not written on stone. This is written on stone. And not only that, it's put into the Ark of the Covenant for special keeping and it is near and dear to God's heart because the Ark of the Covenant represents His presence and His holiness in a way that the other commandments that don't because they, they, don't, they don't go in there. Okay? So the, the presentation of the Ten Commandments sharply distinguishes it from the other commandments, the temporary additional law. And if you would... Well, don't turn with me for just for the sake of time. We're going to look at two big passages later. But um, I've referred to this one before. Exodus 34:27 it says, The Lord said to Moses, this is, by the way, the second time that they were written you know, after they were broken. Uh, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And then he says, and he wrote the, on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So this tells us that the Ten Commandments, he calls them the covenant. Now, obviously, that wasn't the whole thing, but that was the essence of it, was the Ten Commandments. That was the foundation. All the other stuff was sort of like the superstructure built on top of that. But the Ten Commandments were the foundational law of the, of the Old Covenant. Some of it was temporary, but this was not temporary. It was foundational. Um, so we also have seen that there were temporary aspects to the law, and those were fulfilled. Their purpose was fulfilled in Christ. They, and they expired when the offspring came. There was no need to wall off a, a physical, uh, genealogically defined people once the offspring had come. That purpose was fulfilled. There was no need to... Um, Set up a a, a clear, um, I guess, a, a kind of a, a wall of protection for God's people to maintain their existence. And and God had already demonstrated through the old covenant that the the people were unable through that to find any kind of righteousness before God. He never intended it to be that way, but he intended it to teach them that they couldn't do that. So all those things were fulfilled and expired. These temporary parts of the law are generally recognized as what we call ceremonial and civil laws. But the moral law, which is reflected in the in the Ten Commandments, remains. It is permanent. So, and some people say, you know, they expect that if you have this concept of different types of law, civil or moral, civil and ceremonial, that you ought to be able to turn to your Bible and see it color-coded in three different colors and, you know, oh, this one's this and this one's this. It's not that way, but we're talking about a concept of different categories rather than you easily being able to tell which one's which and all that. Uh, I think you ultimately can for the most part, but it takes, sometimes takes some work. So, Then let's let's go specifically to now what the New Covenant says about the believer's view or relationship to the law. Okay, because we talked about the New Covenant, remember, and one of the things it says is Hebrews 8.10. I have it right up here. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So, um, first of all, it it tells us that this is not a move away from the law. The new covenant is not a move away from law. Law is a good thing. And that's said over and over in in scripture. Paul says the law is holy, righteous, and good. Um, So, what laws does this refer to, first of all? What are we to think of when we think of the verb, the verbs putting and writing? What would that bring to our minds? Okay, it's already established, um, and specifically that there's a there's another law, right? What law would what law was put somewhere and written somewhere? The Ten Commandments that it was written by the finger of God and it was put into the Ark of the Covenant. Right? So, so they would have heard those kinds of words and, and, the, and the picture being painted for them. Oh, he's talking about the Ten Commandments here. Okay, now let me say quickly that the Ten Commandments is not an exhaustive exposition of all of God's moral law, but it is a summary, a brief summary of God's moral law. So... So we can see that, um, that this law, which is um, apparently the same laws that were in effect in Jeremiah where he's quoting, he's not saying, well, I'll make up some new laws and put them into your hearts. I'm going to put the laws that you already know that are already revealed to you into your hearts, into your minds, the very ones that you could not obey before, that you re- refused to obey, that you rebelled against. I'm going to put those in your minds and in your hearts so that you love them. So that's the New Covenant's perspective on the law, is that you love God's law. You want to obey God's law. And what law is it? It's the same foundational law that was already in place in Jeremiah when this was written. Because this is a quote from Jeremiah 31. Alright, so the second thing I want us to look at is we talked last week about Biblical principles of interpretation. And what we said was. That the proper method of interpretation of the scriptures. Is taught by revelation to us. Just as the, the doctrine of the Trinity is taught to us by revelation. In other words we can't in our own wisdom. Come up with all the proper methods of interpreting scripture. We need to look at. Uh, submit to the scriptures themselves to teach that to us, okay? So, that's most specifically in relation to covenant theology tells us that the new covenant is the clearest and fullest revelation of God's purposes. In the old covenant, a veil was over them, right? Were you listening this morning? (laughs) A veil was over them as they read Moses and and apart from the glory and, and light of Christ Never would they have fully been able to understand um, what God is doing. So the New, Te- the New Testament is the, is the highest light on Scripture that we can find. So that means then that the method that the New Testament uses to interpret the Old Testament ought to guide us in terms of our method of interpreting and using the Old Testament. And we could learn then from examples In the Old Testament about how to understand. Sorry, in the New Testament about how to understand the Old Testament. So here we go. Here's a a, a passage that uses the Old Testament. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. What is he quoting from? Ten Commandments. Specifically... He says, uh, and he he recognizes I'm not just quoting from some I'm not just pulling some arbitrary verse out of the Old Testament. I am drawing on a particular uh, document or a particular subset. He recognizes that because he says this is the first commandment with a promise. Well, it's not necessarily the first commandment with a promise in the whole Bible, but it's the first one within that body of law, which is the Ten Commandments, and he's saying. I'm, I'm going and, he, oh, and he also he's also not saying, I'm telling you this on my own authority. He could tell this, uh, tell this to us on his own authority as an apostle, but he's not. He is supporting his teaching with the authority of the Old Testament. Specifically, he is assuming the authority not just of that commandment, but of the, the body, the collection of commandments from which he is quoting. He is assuming that the Ten Commandments are authoritative for New Testament Christians, okay? Because he quotes from this as, as this proves my case. If I can find a, a, a teaching in the Ten Commandments to apply to what I'm saying, that will demonstrate authoritatively that this is something that you must submit to. So he uses the um, he he uh, uses the the ten the Ten Commandments, to authoritatively um, underscore his, uh, his message to, about children obeying their parents. So that affirms the authority of all the Ten Commandments. And so we should use the Old Testament the way that Paul used the Old Testament. All right, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 teaches us an important perspective on the, the availability and the use of the law to both Jew and Gentile. So let's look specifically at the passages I've got uh, up here on the slide. And we'll kind of draw our stuff mostly from there. It says, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Notice that when when he's talking about law here, it's always the law. It's the same law being referred to. The Jews have it. The Gentiles don't have it. Okay. That's the difference. The Jews have it. The Gentiles don't. And yet he's saying that in a sense the Gentiles do have it. Okay. They don't have it. What is it that's different? Well, the Jews have it written down. The Gentiles don't have it written down. But what they show is by, by when they are doing those things, they show that by nature in their own consciences that the law is. It, the, the work of the law is written there so that they know whether they're doing right or wrong. Gentiles know that. Okay? So, then it goes on. He says, in verse 21, you then who teach others. And by the way, this I want to ask the question up front. What law is he talking about? Okay? This can help us. Verse 21, you then who teach others. you Jews. Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What is he referring to there? Isn't he referring to the Ten Commandments? He mentions three types of sins there, and every one of them are violations of the Ten Commandments, very explicitly. So he's saying, you, you teach others the law, you have the law, and yet you don't obey it. The, the, the Gentiles don't have the law, but they do it anyway. Not always, and they're condemned for it, but the fact that they do it some indicates that they know it. That they're, they're, uh, they're accountable to the law. And it's the same law that he's referring to here. It's the Ten Commandments. Or, when I say it's the Ten Commandments, I mean it's the law summarized by the Ten Commandments. Okay. So, Um, so his argument here is that even though Gentiles have no written law that is no written law from God they obviously had you know governments and laws written down but the thing that they don't have that the Jews do have is God's law okay they have no written law but they're condemned because they have the law written in their consciences and they disobey it um Also, if you look down in verse 26, it says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And this is another helpful insight because he's saying, Okay, if if you're not circumcised but you keep the law, wait a minute, I thought circumcision was a law. So how could he be talking about that? Well, he must be talking about something different from circumcision then. If he says, if you're uncircumcised but you keep the law, But the circumcision and lots of other things like that, all those ceremonies and things, those were not the kind of law he's talking about. He's talking about this fundamental foundational moral law that is written in the consciences of Gentiles. So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the moral law as um, summarized in the Ten Commandments, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Of course, we know that no one can do that perfectly. So that that would never ultimately happen. Um, So the conclusion of the passage is that Jews and Gentiles have substantially the same law. The additional laws of the Jews, and you could think of as kind of like window dressing in a sense, on the fundamental bedrock law of the Ten Commandments, to which both Jews and Gentiles are accountable according to this perspective in Romans 2. All right. Now, there's also a couple of theological issues here, too. That is that Jesus himself must have lived under substantially the same law that we do, or else how could his obedience count for us? You see, if Jesus had an entirely different set of laws that he obeyed, how could he be a substitute for us? How could he be... The one who took on our sin, if our sins are about different laws than the ones that he was submitted to under the old covenant. How could he um, overcome temptation for a different set of sins? And how can we confidently pray to him and say, I know that you're a, uh, a faithful high priest because you've been tempted in every way just as we are. Wait, how could that happen if Jesus was tempted by a different set of laws than the ones we're tempted by? So it begins to undermine, and like Paul was saying, these, these, sometimes these little things that you're trying to slice nicely theologically, they begin to affect the gospel. And here we see this begins to affect the gospel. Now thankfully, the people that believe this, by and large, would not go there. They, they're, not gonna, they're, they're too much biblicist to go there. But logically, this is where it can lead. And so we need to be careful about stepping on a path that leads logically to things that do impact the gospel. So for both Jew and Gentile, the law cannot save, but it can only condemn. Its only role in salvation is to bar the door to everything but salvation in Christ. But it does continue to have a role in the life of a believer as Hebrews 8.10 teaches us. It shows us the way. It shows us how to please God. When we think of the law as a, as a way of salvation and, and the fact that it condemns, in a sense we, we hate that. We don't want to be condemned. We don't want to be, uh, uh, um, yeah, we just don't want to be condemned. We don't want to see that or experience that. And yet, and we certainly don't want to be drawn to law keeping as a way of salvation. So there, there are lots of negative statements about the law in scripture because of that role. But, as a role of teaching us who God is and his character. The law is holy, righteous, and good. And David can write the longest psalm in the whole Bible extolling the beauties of God's law because the law is a sweet and beautiful thing when it comes to teaching us how to please God. All right. So let me just say a couple of words here to sort of wrap all this up. Um, Why does it matter? The relationship of the Old and the New Covenant impacts our understanding of salvation. That is absolutely crucial. The Jews got it wrong. And they got it so wrong that they missed the grace of the gospel. They didn't understand what the Old Covenant was about, what God was doing. The relationship of the Old and New Covenants impacts our view of the church. Does it continue as an entity that's defined at least partially by genealogy Or is it a spiritual entity that's formed by the work of the Spirit and the mediatorship of Christ? Does it connect uh, to the Old Covenant people of God? Does the church connect to the Old Covenant people of God so that the promises of the Old Covenant can be believed and applied by Christians today and by the church as a whole? It also helps us to read and apply the Old Testament in a way that is both profitable and accurate we must not come again under a yoke of slavery. We must resist that. We must discern that. But also remembering this, um, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So I hope that that's a, an encouragement to you as we move away from this. I want to read a, a, a uh, a hymn to you in closing. And before I do that, I want to just point out that there's a whole section in the outline that I didn't get to. That was intentional. I knew I wouldn't possibly get to it. Um, but I would love for you to read that because um, New Covenant theology makes some cr- claims and criticisms of the 1689 Confession, which we use as our confessional position in our church. And um, I think those are wrongheaded. And I try to answer those in that piece of the outline so if you would don't read that at this moment okay because i want to read this hymn to you and i hope it will be an encouragement to you this is called the law of god is good and wise the law of god is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress its light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts that we may see our lost estate and seek deliverance ere too late to those who help in Christ, whose help, to those who help in Christ have found, and would in works of love abound. It shows what deeds are His delight, and should be done as good and right. When men the offered help disdain and willfully in sin remain, its terror in their ear resounds and keeps their wickedness in bounds. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die, and has no power to justify. To Jesus we for refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free, and humbly worship at his throne, saved by his grace through faith alone. So may the Lord bless our study of this. We're done. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at 1345 Antelope Drive.